Welcome to another episode of the On The Way podcast, a conversation exploring the deeper mysteries of faith from a compassionate, non-dualistic standpoint. My name is Dom Fay, and uh, joining me today, one of our regulars, Reverend Sue Wilton. Good to have you back, Sue. Hi, Dom. And uh, our other guest is someone also, I think our first return guest on the podcast, um, my dad, and also the CEO of Centre for Men Australia and Councillor, Richard Fay. Thanks, Dom. Good to be here. Now... Before we do move on to our conversation about the two halves of life, which is our topic today, I thought we should clear up the fact that last time you were on the podcast, Dad, we discussed non-dualism, and I was going to call you Richard. I struggled throughout the whole podcast. I kept calling you Dad. I'm just raising the white flag. I give up this time. Yep. Your Dad. Be, I'm Dad. Your there Dad. You go. And everyone else can relate to you as Dad. If Sue wants to start calling you Dad... <laughs> I'm already struggling with turning 60 next year. <laughs> we can work it in. We can work it in. Um... Okay, so the, the two halves of life is probably an abstract foreign concept to most people listening in. Uh, it largely comes out of the work of Richard Rohr, the Franciscan uh, priest in America. Dad, th- this is largely what's influenced your life and your work. Can you give a bit of a background as to what the two halves of life is as a concept? Yeah, the first half of life is where we are building a container for life, but we don't know it. We confuse it for our identity because we've got nothing else to work with for an identity. So... We form it based on function and role in life and say that's who we are. And it's based on things such as duty, uh, sacrifice, discipline, hard work, uh, obedience, uh, responsibility, showing up, getting it done, being good at something, being good at anything, being able to prove your mettle, your worth in the world and having enough character to hold what life might offer. And as I said, in the first half of life, we call that our identity because we have nothing else to, to go with or, or, or lean on. And uh, there is a point where that gently or suddenly shifts. And depending on how where we are at the time, it depends on how, how, how long that transition takes into a second half of life where identity is a much more fluid thing and a much less certain thing and yet also a far more rewarding thing. It's uh, deeper, more complex, and also strangely lighter. And I'll, well, we will, I guess, discuss that over time. But um, and and that happens somewhere typically between forty and fifty, where there's a real transition. Though it can start taking place even in your twenties if you're awake to it. I suppose the terminology of the two halves does give quite a mathematical, numerical sense that it would happen around the age of forty when you enter the uh, numerical second half of your life. I suppose. But that doesn't seem to be the way it generally does go. So what what have you seen that has moved you or, or people around you into this, I guess, more second half thinking? Yeah, I, I, well, there's a number of, of triggers. Sometimes I think you get sick of yourself. You you start to be much more awake to the games you're playing, to the um, some of the things. You get a tiredness, you know, a tiredness with the way that you've always done things, with getting, uh, you know, with focusing on success and then realising maybe some of those things actually aren't worth what you've been striving for, that the reward, that's not where the real life is. You know, it's, I think it's a, a drive to authenticity that happens as you get older. Um, and, and in trying to seek that authenticity, you have to let go of some of the ways you've been functioning in the past. And are there a few signs that you're ready for, for that transition that 
yeah, for me, it was tiredness, being just weary with things, um, you know, genuine exhaustion, just working too hard and, and being stuck on the, 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 you know, like the, the mouse, you know, the wheel going round and round and round and, and not taking it in any direction. So that, that weariness that, that kicks in and you get, get sick of yourself because you become more aware of some of the games you're playing and the, the way that you're trying to force yourself to measure up to other people's expectations. Uh, just a bit on your story, Dad. I think we explained it a little bit when you joined us for the non-dualism conversation. But um, you you mentioned to me before that you think you were stuck in the first half, very uh, maybe longer than some are, and very you were very determined to stay there. I, I was. I <clears throat> I discovered that I could kind of squeeze more juice out of the lemon than I thought was possible until the lemon ran dry. And I really gave it a good squeeze. Uh, I, <laughs> I, I, I hit 49 and I think I was running on fumes. And the th- thing that Sue was talking about, you go faster and faster when there's less fuel. It's more combust- combustible. It's, it ex- it's explosive in the end. And you get so tired and exhausted, but you can't stop because you don't know there's any other story. And you're terrified that you come running to the end of your identity. It's as if you're running out of things to prove yourself with. So the same old narratives run over and over. Can I, can I quote Carl Jung? Because this is actually where I first came across it. He said, thoroughly unprepared, we take the step into the afternoon of life. Worse still, we take the step with a false presupposition that our truths and our ideals will serve us as they always have. But we cannot live the afternoon of life according to the program of life's morning. For what was great in the morning will be little at evening. And what was in the morning true at evening will have become a lie. And I realized that I was kind of, was well and truly in the afternoon of life. You know, at 49, you're not halfway (laughs) unless you're going to live as long as the Queen. Uh, So I I was aware that, oh golly, what's next? Decline? Old age? Dementia? That was a bit scary. So I had to keep proving myself to know that I had any value and worth still in the world. Uh, I know that your journey in particular, Dad, hit quite a... A massive roadblock when you were a pastor, senior pastor of a church, and then it all went off the rails, um, which I guess started to, to uh, I guess, commence you on this journey into the second half. Can you just touch a bit on that that personal story? So, uh, end of 2008, I said to a friend, this was the best year I've ever had, and I can't imagine next year being any different. The church was growing. Uh, hundreds of people had joined the church since I'd taken over the role of senior pastor. Everything was going well. The elders had offered me another five years in the role. Um, my family was great. Everything was going so well. It was almost as if uh, success was intoxicating, but also self-defeating because it wasn't doing anything for my inner life. The more successful I was, the more I wanted it and the less it satisfied. So by March 2009, I found myself not sleeping at night very well. I found myself restless and anxious. I found myself needy. Uh, oddly, when I was with a crowd of people, I desperately wanted to be alone. When I was alone, I thought no one cared about me. Uh, I couldn't find a safe space to be. And uh, I realized that everything, I went to a counselor and er- he said, everything you know has got you this far, but it won't get you any further. What I want you to do is take a seat, put it in the lawn, sit there for six hours a day. Don't go out, don't talk to anyone, don't visit uh, don't have visitors over. Don't go on the f- your phone or your computer. Just be present to the sound the wind makes and the leaves. Notice birds. Notice clouds floating across the sky. Six hours a day. That's misery. <laughs> it's the only way I got well. It is interesting. I, I remember being a, I think I was a year 11 student at the time. 
and seeing my dad just sitting in the lawn for hours, I was like, what is he doing? <laughs> because obviously that, that, that doesn't make any sense to someone who's in high school who is, you know, maybe at the very early stages of, of constructing a container, you know, seeing somebody who's going through the breaking of their container. Um, and that is something I want to touch on. Like if people listening to this are very much in the first half, even numerically still, and this all sounds quite abstract, they're not sick of themselves yet, they haven't had any big hurdle why is this stuff, this this concept, this thinking, why is this important to grasp now? I, I would answer that by saying that if you don't, then you'll do what I did, which is squeeze that lemon so hard that you'll end, out, end up in burnout and depression because you won't notice the gentle invitations that life gives you to start letting go, to start jettisoning the baggage that you've been accumulating, both material and psychological, and letting it be, you'll still be living thinking that more is the whole point of life, more internally and externally, not less, uh, that I can think my way through things. So if you don't, then you're going to face a crisis. You're going to, eventually, you're going to face this moment in time when God stops being an equation where if I do these things, God will do those things, and suddenly God will become an obstacle. I do these things and still these bad things happen and God doesn't do a thing about it. And when you get to that point, if you don't have an awareness that you're being invited to start letting go, you will grab ever more tightly and it will be a crisis. And I think too, there's seasons of our life, there's things you can miss if it goes too long. And I look back now and I think there's, uh, David White talks about this, you harvest, there is a harvest for every stage of your life. And part of that harvest is being truly yourself, the self that you can be at that stage of your life. Um, And there's moments that you miss if you are still trying to make the old way of being fit in your life when you've come up to a threshold. There's, you know, being learning to be aware and sensitive to your life is on a threshold of something new. Mm. And if you resist, if you keep staying on that road, as I have done for a number of, you know, there's a number of phases of my life I can point to when I started to get the life just started to disappear, but I kept on going, still using the old framework. And the, you get to the almost to the walking dead point where the, the life is gone, the joy is gone. And, and I think now there was probably a harvest of that stage of my life that mm. I could have... Um, you know, it could have reaped, but I never, and that, that time is gone. I mean, there's all the, you know, there's always new beginnings and there's a chance for, but it's a different harvest now, you know? So I think, you know, it's wonderful to be aware that there are these phases and that there will be thresholds and to learn to read the signs when you're at a threshold and maybe you do need to stop and sit on the lawn for a while. And I just wanted to add there, the threshold is always, or at least in my experience, almost always painful and yet not damning in other words when i'm eight years old and i'm still wearing the clothes mum bought me when i was six the buttons are popping and it feels incredibly uncomfortable in them and i need to get a new pair of set of clothes that fit me well we keep growing on the inside and the only time we ever know we've outgrown what we're carrying on the inside is when it's uncomfortable Mm -hmm. and so those thresholds are points of discomfort that tell me that i've actually lived that stage of life well and now I'm being invited into a more spacious and different so, different space and I have to change my inner clothing. It is interesting though, leaving behind what is familiar is scary. Um, I, I am taken back to a memory I had. Uh, firstly, in my youth days, I was part of the church, obviously my dad pastored and um, we had very Pentecostal type worship uh, and, you know, there was a lot of that 
Um, Jesus is my best friend. I'm in love with Jesus. This sort of idea of worship. And I remember a few years after I stopped going there, I, I tried to get back into a Pentecostal mega church because I wanted to get that again. But it just wouldn't work anymore. It just, I couldn't. Now I was like, I want to believe this because with this comes belonging, community, and part of an experience. But I can't. I can't pretend this is working. This isn't fitting anymore. But letting go of something that you that you used to love or used to think was right, it's it's really difficult work, and it it requires a lot of surrender, doesn't it, Sue? Yeah. Look, it requires a huge amount of surrender. Um, and and it is painful, you know. There's there's no there's no shortcutting around this. I mean, it's interesting you even talk about things not fitting, you know. Why we think we won't keep growing when we can look all of us look back on our childhood and know I have a really clear memory of a time as a child when I wanted to buy a new doll, and I was getting to that age when when little girls stopped playing with dolls and I wanted another doll, and I I went out and I bought this doll, with you know with my Christmas money, and I got it home and I realised I actually didn't want the doll, you know, but I had to do it, you know, and and we we move past things and this keeps happening in life and it's not even just past things but it's into a new new way of being I actually um, Rich and I both without communicating brought in poems today because I think sometimes poetry can mm. express um, so, you know that we, we metaphors are, are the most helpful sometimes in trying to articulate what's going on with this deep inner work mm. and this one this one I think when we're talking about how to how to manage the pain of a new way of being when the old life doesn't fit anymore this is a poem called allow by by Dana folds says there is no controlling life. Try corolling a lightning bolt containing a tornado. Dam a stream it will, and it will create a new channel. Resist and the tide will sweep you off your feet. Allow and grace will carry you to higher ground. The only safety lies in letting it all in. The wild and the weak, fear, fantasies, failures and success. When loss rips off the door of your heart or sadness veils your vision with despair, practice becomes simply bearing the truth. In the choice to let go of your known way of being, the whole world is revealed to your new eyes. And to me, that, you know, it, it is about the practice is, is both more difficult and simpler. The practice mm. is about bearing the truth, the truth of this new way of being that you are at, letting it all in, letting you grieve the old that, that's going away mm. and being and allowing the new because the possibilities of the next stage will be, uh, will be amazing because a whole new world will be revealed once you can pass that threshold. There's a lot of, uh, I, I guess, academic work into how over the past, 20, 30 years, humans have come to believe we are at the end of history, um, that everything has been perfected, that we've worked to this stage. And I think often we take the same approach to life. In any moment, we think we're at the end of growth. You know, all the growth has taken me to this point and now I've got it. Um, And I suppose that was why it was quite profound, Sue, that you and Peter wanted to call this the On The Way podcast. You know, Peter Cat being one of the uh, wisest people I've ever encountered. And one of the first things he said is, but I'm, I'm still on the way. And um, does this require a shift in our thinking? Because we always want to get there. We always want to reach the destination, you know, get to the finish line and then just enjoy coasting home. <laughs> but, but that's not how life works, is it? I, I was absolutely, having raised three sons, I noticed that adolescent boys are incredibly certain and arrogant about their certainty. And uh, of course, I knew nothing and suddenly came into some knowledge as uh, they got into their 20s, my intelligence seemed to increase. And uh, that was simply because there was a growing sense of, I don't know what I don't know. And I'm now, I now know that I don't know what I don't know, which sounds a bit crazy. The older we get, 
the more and more uncertain we become about almost everything. And the more spacious we, uh, if we're doing our work, the more spacious we become on the inside to allow uh, wonder and mystery to replace knowledge and certainty. Facts aren't truth. But in the first half of life, facts uh, display themselves as truth. And the second half of life, myth tends to display itself as truth. And uh, because myth has endless, or, or icons, because they have endless invitations into depth, which means that they can add more and more and more meaning in the face of anything, including suffering and death and loss. Suddenly, those things now are not the end, but only portals into something even beyond. And so we find ourselves peering as if in the dark, and our sight becomes able to see things that we could never have seen when we were younger. I... I just want to touch on a bit more on the first half of life um, because, you know, there might be people listening to this who are feeling like they are coming to the end of that stage or the container is starting not to, to fit anymore. You know, the clothes are getting a little bit tighter and they're like, oh, I might need to, to go shopping soon. Um, Richard Raw is a key thinker in a lot of these areas. I have this quote from him, which he speaks about the first half and I guess the identity building and the, the validity building. And he says, we need to feel special. We need our narcissistic fix. By that, I mean, we all need some successes, response and positive feedback early in life, or we will spend the rest of our lives demanding it from others. There is a good and needed narcissism, if you want to call it that, because you have to first have an ego structure to then let go of it and move beyond it. I think why I like that quote in particular is because the first half thinking tells you that, oh, so the second half's where I'm meant to be. You know what I mean? It's so true. I want to get to the second half then. If they're saying the second half is when you're wiser, I'll get there. How do I get to the second half? But but that that's very that's a very first half way to think of the second half. It, I guess what I'm saying is I don't, it's not about throwing out the first half altogether, is it? I, I use the analogy, and I'd want Sue to comment on this, but I use the analogy of uh, the first thing I do when I buy a new computer is uh, well, the good old days is you put the operating system on it. And, uh, well, that's Flash. I've got whatever it is, Windows or whatever on the, on the computer. But, of course, I can't do anything with an operating system. It just runs everything else. But once everything else is on there, I don't think about the operating system because it's in the background. It's all the applications that I'm actually engaging with. All of the work we do in the first half of life is basically getting the operating system working. But as I said, it's our only reference point. But without a good operating system, the computer's going to crash. A blue screen of death left, right and center. In other words, I can't believe she said that. I can't believe he did that. We're reactive. We're possessive. We're exploitative. If we haven't done the first half of life, the second half of life, as you just said, is just another ego game. And you think you can achieve it, but there's nothing to achieve. So it won't make any sense. You cannot do the second half until you've done the first half. And Richard Rohr also says, it's like a, a musician who gets up on, a pianist who gets up on stage to do a piano concerto, and he hasn't done any lessons at all. And he's trying to read all the notes and he wants to perform for everybody. Whereas the musician who has learned all the rules, he has learned this piece inside and out. He throws the notes away when he gets up on stage and he feels the music. He becomes the music. He un incarnates the music. So he knows the rules, so he knows how to break them. Mm -hmm. 
And I think it's really empowering for parents too. I was speaking to some young parents recently about this who were saying, you know, just to, to be given permission because they went through a stage where thinking it had to be a fairly laissez-faire parenting if they were going to be um, a, a really freedom-giving parent and a parent that will allow their kids' decision and, and free will. And, and reading Richard Raw helped them to see that they were allowed to build the box, that they were allowed to help their kid to have a structure. These are the rules because they needed to get their head around that first. Mm. But, you know, before you can break the rules, you have to know what the rules are and you have to be able to conform with them and to understand the reason for them in, you know, as, as you grow um, before you can really have a chance of properly stepping outside them at the right moment. Uh, another raw quote, he says, he stresses the importance of establishing an identity, a home, relationships, friends, community, security, and building a proper platform for our only life. Um, so maybe this is a good question then. What is, what is a first lot half done well? What is the first half of life done well? Uh, respectful, generous, kind, uh, honest, authentic, servant-hearted, uh, open, curious. Those things are all very good first half of life principles. I use the, the story that James, Jim Finley, James Finley tells. He was a novice at the monastery where Thomas Merton was the, uh, uh, the abbot. And uh, he once went to Thomas early in the morning and said, Thomas, uh, I've, I've been reading Teresa of Avila's interior uh, mansion and, and I, I have a feeling I might be in the fifth mansion, but I'm, maybe I'm only in the fourth. Maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. Tell me, which mansion do you think I'm in? And, uh, and Thomas Merton looked at him and said, it's none of your business which mansion you're in. Go and feed the pigs. In other words, <laughs> just do what's in front of you. Get busy doing what's in front of you. Stop playing some ego game. Like you said, mm. if you hear that the, f- the second half of life is where you should be if you're a mature person, that's just an egoic construct. And what he needed to do is just, uh, there's an old uh, thing about enlightenment, carry water, chop wood, just get busy doing what life has in front of you and life will answer the questions for you if you're doing life. If you're trying to analyze everything and try to get everything right, then that's not going to help you very much because you're trying to make yourself important or valued or influential. And unfortunately, our Western society has emphasized those things and they don't serve us because they just create more insecurity. Uh, Raw goes on to say, you had to do the wanting and the trying and the achieving and the self-promoting and the accomplishing. The first half of life is all about some kind of performance principle and it must be this way. You have to do it wrong before you know what right might be. So do you remember, do you remember when you think you shifted from first to second half? Can you remember a, a moment, a phase of your life when where I guess you started to feel the cracks of the first half and you thought, okay, something new must be on its way. I, I think um, I used to joke that I was having a continuous midlife crisis from about 28. <laughs> um, so it's kind of, I'm not quite sure where, when that was. I certainly know that feeling of the, the mouse on the treadwheel, trying to trying to keep up, um, keep so many balls in the air and to be uh, achieving. It was very achievement focused, trying to, um, and often with good good intention. Often, you know, you could see some good work that needed to be done and I was trying to do it all. Um, and, and I think it, really the cracks were appearing when I realised I couldn't do it all and actually it wasn't about me. Um, so they were they were some of the signs, I guess. Uh, I, in terms of emotionally, it's much more for me where the life disappears, you know, and life life will out. Life has a, you know, this force that um, when you're not really living, when you're focusing on the wrong things, when you're ready for the next stage, you haven't moved on, it will have ways and means of showing you that you're not really living. Mm. Um, 
I think it might be helpful. This has just come to me now, actually, to discuss the five hard truths, because I think these are really, and, and I know, Dad, you're well-versed in these. These five hard truths really are the things you accept as you move into the second half. Would you agree with that? Uh, they are, and uh, we call them promises because life is going to give them to us whether we like it or not. I don't tend to call them truths because a truth sets us free, though these do set us free when we understand them. But they're more promises because they're going to come, they're going to happen. Well, the first one being life is hard. Life is hard. So every time I sit in a traffic jam and mumble and complain, complain and groan or you know talk about oh gee the government's just ripping me off with this tax or i'm so tired oh i don't want to get out of bed i want to go. so i'm like the, the the you heard this story um there's someone wakes up in the morning i don't want to go i don't want to go to school to go i don't want to go to school i hate school it's so hard and the mother says well you're the principal <laughs> <laughs> we we are acti- acting like children and life is hard and we have to, once we accept it well of course i'm stuck in traffic everyone gets traffic i live in a city what do i what do you expect mm. yes of course i pay a lot of tax so does everybody else i'm lucky i get to pay tax because i got all this money uh, you're not in control uh, there's a great so that's illusion. Number two. Yeah, that's number two. And there's a great illusion that we should be in control. We're in control of very little. And uh, when we come to a place of accepting that we're not in control, we're actually free to allow life to be what it is rather than forcing into what we wish it would be. Mm. Life is not about you, number three. Life is not about you, but you are about life. Life is not about you because if it's about you, then you have to make you the center of self at the center of attention. You have to make yourself the focal point, which is an awful lot of pressure on you. You have to lead. I don't lead anything anymore. I tend to facilitate, which makes it easy for other people to participate. I'm not interested in leading because I don't want to be the focal point. I love at the cathedral how liturgy strips ego from uh, from the role, so that I'm simply bringing my best self, but not my uh, not not having to be the focal point. It's, it's not about me. Um, I'm not that... So let's go through the... So we've got life is difficult. You are not in control. Your life is not about you. Yeah, but you're about life. Yeah, what's the fourth? The fourth is uh, you're not that important. It sounds similar to the one before, but this is where you need to learn that, you know, you empower others. You don't try to hold on to power. The belief that if I have power, somebody else won't is from an, from an earthly kingdom where power is limited. In God's kingdom, power is unlimited, which means if I give my power away, I have more of it. I give my power away by empowering others. And the more that others are empowered, the more they give power back to me. But of course, I don't want power, so I keep giving it back to them and it just builds up. What a wonderful thing. But it's the other way around is if I think I'm important, I'm not going to delegate anything because then I'll be redundant. And if I'm redundant, I'm a nobody. And so that's the fourth one. And the last one is (laughs) you're going to die. And the whole promise is that you see our ego, which is the second half of life, real message, our egoic container as you said, raw, quoting Raw earlier, it needs to be strong enough to collapse in on itself so that it can hold the dissolution of meaning. It can hold the destruction and devastation that life is going to bring in those five promises so that then you know it's not actually about your life. I'm going to die. But Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And there is something inherently wonderful about dying and discovering there is a life beyond that. And what I mean by that is if I do a uh, contemplative sit, if I do prayer as I do each day in silence, I'm inviting myself into death. I'm going to a place where my ego, hopefully, has a lot less control of me. And then I find a freedom. Now, in the first half of life, prayer is actually about 
trying to get God to do stuff uh, because I don't really know how else anything's going to happen. I need help. <laughs> but by the second half of life, no, I really don't want to change what is. I want to learn how to accept and embrace more fully what is. So life is difficult. You are not in control. Your life is not about you. You're not that important. You're going to die. I, I <laughs> Look, it's, it, it sounds a bit morbid, but it, it, a thought just occurred to me that you could almost reverse all of them and they would be the promises of the first half. That life is easy. You are in control. Your life is about you. You are important and you'll live forever. They're the illusions of the first half of life. And, you know, they're inescapable illusions. I know when I was 20 years old, I could not imagine I was ever going to die. Mm. Uh, now it's suddenly, well, you know, my, my, my parents and parents-in-law were all dead within 10 years of now, except my dad, who had no health beyond that. So uh, it's something very real to me. And it doesn't, it's not fear and trepidation. Though I have heard it said that there's a race between enlightenment and dementia, and I'm not sure who's going to win. <laughs> I'm hoping it's enlightenment. Um, well, some might say, listening to that then, that this is just a, a coping mechanism with the midlife crisis, with oncoming death. But it, 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 I mean, having known you throughout all of my life, Dad, I have not known a, a more peaceful, more content, a happier, more loving Richard Fay than the one who exists now. I remember my dad when I was younger was rarely home, was, was very busy, was very uh, achievement-based, I'd probably say was my perception looking back on it. So this isn't just a coping mechanism. This is actually a transformation, isn't it? You use the word more content, and I think that's the essence of this, is that there is a, an extraordinary contentment or an at-easeness within someone who's doing the second half of life well. It's an allowing, allowing life to be what it is on its own terms rather than you trying to force it into your expectations. And then suddenly things that mattered so much, so as I said, there's a jettisoning, uh, there's a thisness of everything. Uh, this tree, this day, this flower, this bird, this person. There's an acceptance of whatever that person is saying or doing. Well, I don't have to judge them. I don't have to force them to be what I think they should be. I don't have to rescue them or fix them. I don't have to prove myself to them. How freeing that is. So then there is a deep contentment, uh, which is quite spacious. And then, oddly, uh, God becomes so much larger than the first half, my first half of life understanding of God. And you're right, I, I, I tend to want very little. I, I think I actually theoretically could live on very little. Um, there's a decluttering, <laughs> 20 trips to the tip as we moved house, an actual decluttering that's happened. And I would quite will, happily, I, I, I remembered I had to hold on to my parents' furniture because it was my grandparents' furniture. And then I thought to myself, why? I'm not sure I actually do. Because one day I'll be gone and I'm not sure my children and grandchildren are going to care. What am I trying to hold on to? Um, so there is a sense of letting go that's going on constantly and that brings a great contentment. So it's not misery. It's not, you know, kind of finding some story you tell yourself to keep yourself going until you're dead. It's oddly not seeing dying as a loss. Actually, dying is the final surrender. I'm not, God's not taking my life from me. I'm willingly and gladly giving it to him. What a wonderful thought. So uh, uh, I guess a lot of the things we see done in the world, films made, books written, buildings built, are all done off first half energy. Achieving something, performing well, um, satisfying something within you. Whereas the second half of life where you come to accept or, or struggle to accept at some stages that it's not about achievement, it's not about yourself, 
Um, it is enriching, but how do you get anything done? <laughs> how do you get anything done? What's what's the fuel you're using now? <laughs> yeah. I, I think that you do, um, you know, and I still flip back into into manic pace occasionally and, and need to, to breathe and remember that that's, that's not the space where things happen. I think there's the beautiful part for me in this space, I mean, I'm 49 and the beautiful part of the space I'm in right now is that things seem to just happen naturally. Uh, the, the work that I'm doing, things seem to have a flow to them. And I don't feel like I used to feel like I was pushing a heavy burden up a steep hill because I had to, had to get it there and get it over the other side. I just don't have that sense that I have effort. So, you know, that's a, I, I'm loving that, you know, that just the freedom and the flow of it. I think the other part of it, though... Because um, in some ways it might seem a bit dull, you know, that, that you get to the second half of life, you get to give all this stuff up, all the, you know, the things that you might be finding exciting in first half of life, you think, oh, gee, have I got to let all that go? But the, the wonderful thing that I'm noticing is, is the, um, and I think this is the gift of people who are, um, the, the gift to the young or whichever, at the earlier stage, we've got to help re-enchant the universe. Um, and that yes. that reenchantment is is something that that I'm discovering every day is magical, um, and I didn't have that when I was younger. And I think part of the despair we're seeing um, so often in in um, in Western society, um, particularly amongst the young, is is partly because we keep communicating this this image of a disenchanted universe. We we keep this idea that there is this achievement. Then you put away enough money so that you make sure you invest in your super, so you're going to have a nice quiet retirement. You basically work with the goal of your retirement. You work during the week to get to the weekend, and then you get to retirement and and you'll sit on a beach. You know, and and the beach might be lovely, but it look you know it 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 just looks a little dull. That that's an achieving life, you know, and we've flicked into this very um, mechanistic view of the world that that we manage all of this. Um, and if you do it well, if you're successful enough the first half, then you'll kind of just be looked after in your old age, or you'll you'll be able to sit back and go, wow, I achieved, you know. And that kind of vision of a life is so deadening. You know, it, mm. that kind of vision is boring and it um, takes away the magic. And, you know, there's, there's a reason why so many talk about movies. There's a reason why so many movies like Harry Potter, you know, people are so passionate about it to the point that, you know, they have lots of Harry Potter things tattooed on their bodies. Or, you know, I, I went to Harry Potter Studios and the joy that people experience there is just incredible. Um, and it's because it presents an enchanted universe. And, and that's actually the truth, you know, and I think that's the gift that, if you're in the second half of life that we have to give back to the to the world is to keep on showing, pointing to the enchanted universe that is actually the truth. And, and on that topic, I think in the first half of life, at least for me, I was trying to possess this enchantment and I'm finding in the second half of life it's possessing me. I'll, I'll give you an example and that is one of the most wonderful things that happened to me two years ago was standing in front of a row of cottonwood trees that were now bare in early winter in the mist. And I stood in front of these trees, towering, towering cottonwood trees, and I wept. And I have absolutely no idea why, except that the, the tears were healing and freeing and whole, and I was home. And I, why was I home? I wasn't anywhere near what I, where I live, but I was more home inside myself than I could ever imagine being. 
Compare that to yeah. to my timeshare place in Hawaii, to quote David White. <laughs> yes, that's you know? right. <laughs> and, and, and that's the thing. It, it's because it's mystery. Because you're actually in allowing, in what we're saying is you're letting go and allowing, you actually allow mystery to be there. You allow yourself to be a mystery. You've got, there is mystery in your relationships. You know, in most intimate relationships, you allow the other person to, to continue to be a mystery. And you, you, you come across the cherry blossom trees or the, you know, and, and you just are, are awed with that in some way that we can't quite explain. And that mystery just, I think, brings and allows that the magic of, of life and the wonder of life to be present every day. Uh, I think it, it's interesting because awe and wonder are quite inherently natural mm. to us. I mean, you just have to be with the child looking at Christmas lights mm. to see that it's in the child's eyes. And then it's mm. almost bred out of us as we you know, go through those school years and then into university and into work. It's kind of bred out of us when you're taught it's important to, you know, start investing and make sure you're smart with your super early on and climb that ladder. And then I guess in your second half, you come back to, to how did I lose the awe? How did I lose that wonder? You rediscover it. Uh, uh, T.S. Eliot actually put this into a poem in Little Gidding. And I just want to read this poem and it says it all. We shall not cease from exploration... And the end of all, all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Though un, through the unknown remembered gate, when the last of earth left to discover, is that which was the beginning. At the source of the longest river, the voice of the hidden waterfall and the children and the apple tree, not known because not looked for, but heard half-remembered in the stillness between two waves of the sea. Mm. So he's imagining returning to innocence, but now knowing it for the first time. There's a sense of childhood wonder that we do have it bred out of us, but it, it calls us, it beckons us. When we return to it, and it's interesting that Scripture starts in a garden and ends in a garden. Isn't that, isn't that profound? Uh, that, that when we know it, we now know that at first we could not understand or express it, but now it envelops us and we're safe in it and we recognize it for the first time and yet remember it as from the ancient, ancient times in our childhood. And I think this is, I suppose, where a lot of people have conflict or, or struggle within them in some faith systems they come into because faith can be very much dealt with as a first half thing, building a bigger church, building church congregation numbers, um, you know, did you read your devotional book every day this week? It, it, I remember a mentor of mine recently telling me um, how dismayed he was about how our devotional life has become achievement-based. You know, how long did you spend praying today? Or, uh, you know, we, we saw you at um, our Wednesday night Bible study for three years. That's an impressive effort. <laughs> Um, that we, we have turned that which is actually all about the soul and the, the inner life into very first half you know, how, how well can I do? How good can I be at this? How impressive can I be? And I think that, would you agree, Dad, that that creates a version of faith that just doesn't quite fit right, doesn't feel right? Again, I'd, I'd be very, very careful to, to while well, I agree, it, it, it's dangerous to not uh, be dualistic about it because it, Richard Raw. Uh, scandalously says that the church can not do our work in the second half of life. It can only do the first half of life work. 
what it does is it provides a lot of those rules that I talked about, and it does a very good job. And if you think about most of what you see in church, it's how to be uh, a good boy or girl, how to honor your mother and father, how to respect one another, how to be you know, appropriate at the workplace and how to work hard and how to study hard and how to find love and how to be faithful to your spouse and how to raise children. And then what? Well, let's keep repeating those messages on an infinite loop. By the time you're in your 30s or 40s, you hopefully are waking up to the fact that the church can do none of your work for you. Now, I happen to belong to a community of faith where the invitation is for me to do my own work and the invitation is often given. No, always given, whether I'm responding or awake to it. And unfortunately, well, perhaps unfortunate, I'm not sure if it is unfortunate, at least as far as the numbers game goes, uh, it won't do my work for me and it won't pretend to. I won't keep thinking on Monday morning, I have to get back to church next Sunday to remember what I've forgotten because obviously I still haven't worked out how to live it and maybe the guy up the front or the woman up the front, most likely a guy, will tell me how to do it and so I keep coming back and the guy up the front knows I'll keep coming back because he's present, presenting a form of perfection. Uh, the church that's far more authentic, that second half of, half of life, is able to show the the stumbling, falling clumsy ways in which we attempt to live our lives authentically but then the authenticity is found and being honest about that and then I'm able to live my own life and journey with others living their life and not judge them and not tell them how many times they have to do the devotion or ask them how their prayer life is going the stupidest question I've ever heard is are you praying enough what's enough <laughs> first half of life can probably put some formula on it it's pretty useless yeah, look, I I agree. I think it's a totally different um, a, a, a church that instead of being performed, because it can, we can make anything performance based. We're very good at it as human beings, you know, and so we're really good at turning our religion into a performance based affair as well. But instead, church has the capacity, and Christianity, particularly being in an incarnational faith, an embodied faith. Um, has the capacity to encourage people to gather around ritual, to bring their anxieties, to bring, you know, the, the sort of thing, the, the, the five terrible truths, you know, bring those to the table, actually mm. know you're going to die, to be aware of, of feelings of guilt and shame, you know, to, be, to come with our questions of meaning and you bring them around the table. And, we, and I mean, I've said this so many times before that the Eucharist is an incredible ritual for, for bringing those things and us all, you know, breaking and sharing together. But there are other rites within the church. So it's much more about gathering around rituals that help us open up those questions than it is about a checklist of how are we achieving this faith thing. It, I mean, we've spoken a lot about the beauty of the second half of life, the perhaps the, the freedom, the surrender, um, but it is a messy process often, having to give up that first half, having to let it go and embracing the second half. I mean, it was uh, years of burnout and depression for you, Dad, for you know, other people that might end up with midlife crises, uh, things like that. For people who might be starting to go through that, who are right in the midst of the messiness, uh, what words of, of wisdom, of advice would you say, having gone through it yourself? Uh, there's, there's another quote by T.S. Eliot um, where he, he goes, wait without hope, for hope would be hope of the wrong thing. L live without faith wait without faith because faith would be faith of the wrong thing but there is love and in this he's saying uh we whenever we jump to oddly even to faith and hope these things are going to be trying to grasp what we've known 
But the problem with the midlife crisis, if we understand it, is that the way behind is closed off, not the way ahead, the way behind. So we cannot go back to Egypt. We cannot return to business as usual. And we can't yet live what is coming. And so patience, waiting is the only game we have. And, and oddly, waiting became my sacred gift. Waiting was my faith. Waiting was my hope. I didn't have hope that it would ever be better because if I'd thought, oh, it'll be better, it just meant that I would get back on the wheel I had once been on and it would be more of the same. I couldn't imagine what was ahead because I hadn't lived it. I hadn't experienced it. All I'd known was great success behind me that had finished, that had ended, and I had to grieve it and I had to wait. So patience is the thing that I most say. And also, like a like a, a chrysalis holds a caterpillar as it becomes gel because it doesn't become a butterfly it becomes gel and were it not for the chrysalis it would not be held in darkness while it waits to become something else and so i say we do need wise people around us men and women who can hold us in that place because often if we aren't held or contained we fall apart and then we can act out, we can do foolish things, we can go towards drugs and alcohol and uh, sleeping with people who aren't going to love us or care for us. And we prolong our pain if we grasp at things that are not going to help. We try to medicate ourselves or distract ourselves in that time. We have to wait in the darkness and be reminded that we are loved in the midst of it. Yeah, I, I think that reminder that we are loved in the midst of it is so critical. I, I our, I, I see this, um, you know, the confirmation principle everywhere. Sometimes as we're going through difficult, like if we're in that dark space, we've passed the, the previous stage and we haven't, we're just in this waiting time, we might still be in that achievement bias or we might be still be, you know, you wake up in a grumpy mood one morning um, and you start to think that something that someone said was really a criticism and then you go into your day and you see criticism everywhere, you start to see, and if you extrapolate that onto God, um, and, and see God is also expecting the same achievements out of you and God ticking the boxes, God checking up on you and thinking you haven't really done well enough. Mm. And when we expect that kind of God, um, you know, that's what we find. And yet this is why Jesus reminds us again and again of the nature of God. If we start to actually trust that God has good gifts to give us, that God is actually um, would pour out to us in abundance. So I was just at doing a, a Eucharist yesterday and, and the, the reading was asked and you'll, you'll receive, seek and you will find, knock on the door will be open to you. You know, those kind of questioning, you know, that, that there's blessing in the questioning. But then Jesus goes on to give us an example. And I think this is very telling. Jesus says, you know, that you can trust a parent, even basically a bad parent would know that if a child asks for bread, you don't give the child a stone. You know, and, and that kind of expectation, Jesus is saying it's all about your expectations of life. And it's mm. that you expect the parent. And even, even we as pretty ordinary parents can know how to give good gifts. I think the expectation of love and of recognizing and part of the allowing is, is just trusting trusting that the God who created us as unique, you know, there is no other. We are all, we are all single events. Mm. You know. And, and the, the incarnational nature of that means that what was the greatest curse someone could say to me when I was in that darkness was that God loves you because that was, again, theoretical and esoteric. Mm -hmm. It has no relationship to my life. Whereas if someone held me or said, I'm here for you, I'm staying with you, I'm standing by you, that was a demonstration mm -hmm. of God's love that was immediate mm -hmm. and concrete and real, and that sustained me. That's the chrysalis I'm talking about. That's the kind of holding that a person in that kind of transitional, that threshold space needs. Mm -hmm.
uh, Jim Shermer on a podcast a few episodes ago, he did speak about um, Holy Saturday and about how on Holy Saturday they didn't necessarily know that the that Easter Sunday was coming, that all you could do with the disciples on that day was sit with them. And I think that's uh, that that's a great analogy for, I guess, the first half, second half transition, that there is a new life that follows, but there is the three days, there is that metaphorical time between the death and the resurrection. It's not instant. The most unhelpful message I've heard the church give in regard to Easter is it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. Mm, because yeah. it eliminates and obliterates the whole point of what God is saying in the crucifixion is that you must come after me. If you want to follow me, this is going to happen to you. Are you willing to let go and lose all hope and mm. trust and wait? But also, there's this Alan Watts video I was watching recently. I actually showed it to you, Dad, where he speaks about all throughout life. When you're in grade two, we're working hard to get into grade three. When we're in high school, we're working hard to get into university. University, working hard to get the job. The job, working hard to get the promotion. The promotion, working hard to buy the house. That actually, if you use that same framework for... I'm going through this tough time to get the resurrection. That actually you haven't you haven't <laughs> broken out of that system at all. No, because first half of life is of energy, energy is more, more, and so resurrection just means becomes another more, which plasters or plugs back into the first half of life energy of achieve, make it happen, prove that he's risen from the dead. Come on, yeah. <laughs> I've, I've I've now got to somehow demonstrate this through my own internal manufacturing and it, it's exhausting. I suppose it's also living somewhere other than where you are now. It's living in the promise of where you might be rather than the reality of where you are now. Yeah, oh, definitely. The reality of where you are now, I think that there is that, that idea again of that harvest of your life wherever you are and that there are times when being alone there's a harvest in that. There is a time for that. There's there's times when struggle, you know, just waiting it, and and you're t- describing that waiting out with patience times, you know, and and it actually can be one of the greatest teachers. It's often not pleasant, but those times, if you don't actually do that season, you know, we need to walk through the seasons. And I think in Australia, certainly in Brisbane, we miss out actually having not having really clear physical seasons because the we talk about the dark night of the soul, but I think winter is such a great example of when when you actually do see the change in the trees and in the natural world where where life seems to disappear but you don't skip winter and just fast forward to spring you have to walk through winter and there comes a time when winter's over and and life starts to come and ultimately um spring only is beautiful because you've been through winter it's a dad you were at a beach holiday not too long ago and I, you were telling me that you know after the first week you thought i could retire and do this forever but then by the end of the second week, you realise the importance of having the year of work between the holiday because otherwise the holiday wouldn't, wouldn't be meaningful at all. No, it becomes just more of the same. And it's actually the textures and colours and shapes and shades that we tend to appreciate as we go through life. I was even observing this morning that when I was a child, I never wished for air conditioning. It was hot. And it was hot, and I'd play under the sprinkler or whatever. If it was raining, I'd get in my gumboots and jump in puddles uh, and run in the rain. Uh, it's funny, I embraced and accepted life, and then, of course, I tried to insulate myself from it, and now I'm in this process of re-engaging with what life brings, whatever that is, and knowing that this is not good or bad, this just is, and it's another thing to experience. So to, to go back about half an hour, you did mention that most of the time this is a midlife process, but some people it happens as early as their 20s. Why Why is it different for everyone? Why is, I guess, the move happen at a different pace for people? Because while you say it can happen for some in their 20s, and I do want to touch on this in a second, there's also some people you can see, and, you know, the, the current American president might be an example, who reject the 
invitation to the second half again and again and end up being old people still stuck so much in their ego in their first half of life. So why can it happen for one person in their 20s and not for another person in their 70s? My, my experience is noticing the message and welcoming the humiliation. The word humiliation to return to the earth, uh, to remind myself I am of the earth. And that's not a bad thing. That's a wonderful thing. The Aboriginal Australians get this. Their ancestors are in the earth. The earth is sacred. They want to be part of the earth. It loves them. And uh, the humiliation is a welcome. I, I'm, I've got a poem by Rilke, and I, I wanted to read this, and it's so beautiful. Already the ripening barberries are red. I just want to say he, he was looking out over a garden in, in late autumn when he wrote this poem, with winter coming. Already the ripening barberries are red, and the old asters hardly breathe in their beds. Whoever is not rich now that summer goes will wait and wait and never be himself. The man, and obviously this is gender specific, but you can put woman in here. The man who cannot simply close his eyes, certain that there is image after image, simply waiting until night time to rise all around him in the darkness. It is all over for him. No more days will open. No more things will happen. And even the things that do happen will cheat him. Even you, my God, and you are like a stone that draws him daily deeper into your depths. It's odd, but you see, God is a severe reality, loving, severe reality, because God will strip us bare. God will have us naked, only that we might know love, and might know love in the most profound way. But as long as we insulate and protect ourselves from what we fear, we will never know that love. Yeah, and I think the the tragedy for some people um, is that because in that first half of life they didn't receive love, they didn't have the chance to be attached and, and, and close with, with whether family or friends, they didn't receive that value, it, it becomes very, very hard for them to face some of the, the stripping down, for them to be able to, because you, if we're still trying to, to measure up to something that you never achieved, it can be that much harder. I mean, and, and I guess that the word there is that there's still hope, but, but you do need to work out and be clear on what, what's driving you. And that's a great second half of life mm-hmm. message for mm-hmm. Donald Trump, mm-hmm. because as I've seen Stephen Colbert identify the father wound in Donald Trump, mm-hmm. and that brings compassion, mm-hmm. not judgment. Yeah. Mm. Well, that's that's the 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 I guess the story that he always wanted his father's approval and never received it, and he's gone on to become the president. He's gone on to become the president out of that wound. And I remember you commenting to me once, Dad, about how much compassion you can feel for Donald Trump when you realise that's how much he loved his father. <laughs> that's how much his father meant to him that he would become president to matter to him. Mm. And is this enough, Dad? Is this enough? Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. And of course, he's he's not conscious of this, and he'd probably completely reject it if you said it. And he's he's built these walls up, but it is proof of what happens if you don't embrace these messages. And I I, I just got emotional thinking of Donald Trump and wanting to give him a hug. And so that, <laughs> that, that, it does show what what uh, I suppose the thinking of of each human as as just another broken person trying to make sense of it rather than a hero or a villain can do for your compassion, I suppose. And you realise how non-dual the second half of life becomes. Mm -hmm. Completely. Um, Richard Rohr goes on to say, until you can trust the downward process, the great mystery cannot fully overtake you. It's largely a matter of timing. Some of us put it off until the last hour of life, but the sooner you can do it, the better. 
almost all spirituality teaches you the secret of dying before you die. And this is uh, what you were talking about earlier, Dad, that, that sooner or later, it might happen in your 20s, might happen in your 30s, 40s, 50s, but sooner or later, there is going to be an invitation from the, the early programming you get that this isn't going to work. You've got to surrender it. And some people might not have had, listened to this, might not have felt that invitation yet, but I guess the, the message is that it will come. And when it does come, you're probably going to resist it at first. Most people do. But then how do you start to accept it? What's the, the, the beginning of the, okay, I'm not going to fight this anymore. What, what, what was the beginning of it for you? Was it that you couldn't fight it anymore? or uh, I, I remember being on a Rites of Passage, which I'm involved with, with the Centre for Men. It's called a Men's Rites of Passage, work that Richard Raw started himself. And uh, I remembered a particular rite, which I won't describe if any man listening to this eventually goes on the rites, where I saw my ego. And I didn't judge it. I didn't hate it. I actually loved it. The, the, the narrative that was, I was aware of was, you poor bedraggled soldier, you have worked so hard to prop me up. You have worked so hard to prove me, to give me worth, to give me value. And all of your labor was in vain. All of your labor amounted to nothing, but you had to do it because it was the only way you could to find any worth or value. And now, as I wish you adieu, as I wave you off, I want to say thank you. Thank you. This is sounding very odd, but that was this enormous compassion for myself. Enormous, not judgment. Oh, you stupid thing in your 30s. You thought you knew everything and you knew nothing, you idiot. It was quite the opposite. It was, oh, how hard you fought for me. How much you love me. I know it's odd to think of my ego as a construct that was trying to serve me, but of course it was. It didn't know any better. It built itself based on an environment there. It was constantly evaluating. Like what Sue said earlier, uh, I, I constantly scan my environment. Am I good enough? Comparison and competition, the only two games in town. And so that's what, it's a phantom. God will not validate my false self, my, my ego, because he cannot see it or she cannot see it because my false self does not actually exist except between my two ears. But nevertheless, I can see it. And, and I had to, I had to honor it. I had to grieve it and I had to bless it. And, and of course, I still put it on some days. Yesterday, I was a bit frantic and busy and distracted. Today, I'm far more present. And so, but, but I don't take it very seriously anymore. When I, when I come, put it back on, I go, oh, there you go. You, you think you can still think you can help me. I, I use something I heard Rob Bell say, you're going to be in the car. Maybe it'd be best if you're in the back seat and, I'm go and you're going to talk to me but, and I'll listen to you and acknowledge you. I just don't want you to be in the driver's seat anymore. Yeah, that's right. You know, and I think it's about coming at coming home. You can find yourself so far from yourself. You're a stranger to yourself, and um, you're not who you are. And, and we are all that unique, unique creation for for this time on earth. And but finding who we are is a lifetime work. Stepping into who we are, and I, it does come down to self compassion. And and I, I hope people listening like poetry because I've got another poem too. But it does tap in really clearly to what you're what you were just saying there, Richard. Um, this one's by Derek Walcott, and it's called Love After Love. The time will come when, with elation, you will greet yourself arriving at your own door, in your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread. 
Give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit, feast on your life. <laughs> that is beautiful. Yeah, it, it, it's just gorgeous. And, and, and that, that befriending the self who has loved you all your life. Mm. You know, and I think that's the call of Christ. Yeah, there is that moment where I suddenly was seeing my my own life with the eyes of Christ. So one question for both of you before we do finish it up. Um, And I'd like to know what you both say to this one. Compared to, um, I suppose, let's let's look at, uh, I'm sitting here as a 24-year-old. I'd be interested to know from both of you how you would see your identity now as different to how you did at 24. How is your identity and how you view your identity changed over the journey since you, I guess, accepted these second half principles? I am a mystery to myself. I don't really know myself. I can only love myself. I know others see me as someone and, of course, they see me through the eyes of their own experience of life in a myriad of ways. I know really only that I'm loved and I know that I'm enough. I've said this, I'm not the best counsellor. I'm good enough. (laughs) What's good enough? Well, I I guess I suppose the person of the counsellor in my profession is the only thing I bring. My expertise is worth very little. Oh, it's important, but ultimately it's quite meaningless unless it's integrated into who I am and that hospitality I show myself is the hospitality I show others. And this is very key. In the first half of life, I gave hospitality to others, hoping they would give me hospitality. I furnished other the rooms of other people's hearts, hoping they would furnish mine. In other words, I gave to others out of my lack and out of my insecurity, hoping that it would complete me. Now I'm far more aware that I need to furnish my own heart. I need to show myself hospitality And others can come and sit in my presence and learn to furnish their own hearts. Oddly, that's freeing. I don't have to rescue or save. I don't have to fix. I don't have to mend. I simply have to have enough space within me for them to sit in my presence and they can find their own truth, their own reality. And that is mysterious and slow work, but it's also very gentle work and therefore a lot less striving, a lot less effort. And whether they are made whole in their own journey, if I help at all, the only help I offer is simply by being that safe presence to myself in their presence. That's beautiful. Yeah, I I, I think if I was going to look back, um, I I think I had a a number of masks that I was wearing in my 20s. I think I would have had, and I was certainly more fragmented. You know, there was different personas for different situations. Um, and I could flip between them pretty quickly, um, and they were generally based on on my expectations of how I thought other people wanted me to be in those places, and in those different different contexts. So you know, that that has um, changed. I think in my thirties, I actually was pulled up short at one stage of my life when I repeatedly heard myself described as driven. <laughs> That's that's a humiliating experience, you know. And I had to take it on. It came from too many different places that I had to go right. 
there's obviously something in this, you know, and maybe I need to, to take a close look. And, and I think they're the things that I've shed. And, and I think this place now where I'm at, I, I feel the most consistent. And I guess we can all slip into mask wearing. Um, but I feel the most consistent from the moment I wake up to when I go to bed at night. You know, I feel like I'm the one person. And that's the most freeing, freeing thing. And I think what I do, and particularly in this wonderful job, I always tell people, you know, my role, my job is the best job in the world. Um, because you get to be consistently yourself in as as you go about your work and all things, you know. And um, that that is is the greatest blessing for me, I guess, in this stage of life. I know I did say that was the last question, but another's come to me. And I would like you both to answer this as well. Um, if you had 10 minutes now with your 24-year-old self, um, the person who is inherently caught up in the first half, the person who is fighting these identity battles, who is feeling all these insecurities, what would you say to them? What would you, would you say anything? Uh, yes, I would say, how can I help you? What do you want from me? But obviously, if they were not sure how to answer this, I would probably say, relax a whole lot more. <laughs> relax a whole lot more. Don't they take anything quite as seriously as you do. You know, there's not, there's not an exam at the end of this. <laughs> there's no one keeping score. It's going to be okay. Uh, they'd be the things I'd be saying. I tied myself up in knots thinking that if I did it all right, got it all right, made it all work, that somehow I'd succeed. I'd get there, wherever there is, because I was never here, I suppose. Look, that, that's, that would have been a great message for me too. Very, very similar, except that I'm pretty darn sure I wouldn't have listened. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Likewise. <laughs> Actually, I remember I asked you this question a few years ago, Dad, what you would say to your 18-year-old self. And you, I think you took a second and you breathed and you said, I'd just give him a hug. <laughs> yeah, I, I ultimately, I, well, I, well, that's exactly the thing. I just hold you. Yeah. yeah. You're okay. Yeah. You're okay. Yeah. <laughs> You're okay. As you are. Mm-hmm. Well, hopefully this has been a enlightening, helpful conversation for people uh, on any stage of that first half, second half, or the space in between journey. Um, it is an ongoing journey. I suppose that's a key part of all this. It's not a one day you'll get there. It's not a one day you'll get it. It's a day by day, um, month by month, ongoing journey um, that you two are both, obviously you'd probably say very much still on, mm. I'd imagine. Absolutely on on the way. And on we'd love way. to actually hear from people too. We have a mm. on the way podcast Facebook page. Yes. Um, that'd be a great place to hear from. We know there's lots of people listening and it'd be lovely to hear from that. And maybe we're mm. thinking a Q and A sometime soon would be good. So if people yeah. have questions or reflections, we'd just love to hear from you. If you want to send, if you want to keep it private or confidential, feel free to send messages through to the page. Only we will see them and we can keep you name private or if you would like to post on the page any questions uh someone you'd like to have us get on as a guest and uh yes we'll be back with another episode of the on the way podcast shortly thanks tom thank you